Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is just about one minute past four and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Today we'll be hearing about cochlear implants and uh, the dark side to the story of the, I think it was last year they made $800 million out of their implants but found out more recently that they use cats in applaudable experiments to um, try out their implants. I'll be speaking with Helen Marston who's from the Humane Research Australia organisation. Talisman Sabre in the Northern Territory, we've been hearing about all the things that were happening up in Queensland, but um, this year they took them all over, or many of them over to Queens, into Northern Territory, and they had a rip-roaring time, the Americans mainly, with a few Australians and a token Japanese there, and the people, the local people, many were not impressed. Looks like the former president of Sri Lanka, Rajapaksa, is on the comeback trail, but whether he gets there or not depends, I think, on the current president, Saracena, who's not too keen on Mr Rajapaksa coming back. So we're talking to Dr Brian Sinimuratna, who's a, a Brisbane doctor and a human rights activist. BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanction Movement, and the work of a radio documentary journalist in Sydney, Cathy Peters. You might have seen some of her documentaries on the ABC in recent years and in recent times she has done a number of documentaries on the plight of Palestinians in the Occupied Territory and Gaza. But first of all, let's see how Mr Kevin Healy has got through this week. A week, Jane Lister, when... Oh, come on, look, let's start off by being bitchy. How sad it was, how compassionate we felt as we watched poor Bronnie looking so sad, stuck on the back of the back benches yesterday. Poor Bronnie, we thought, poor, poor Bronnie. Probably the chance to gloat would be the only reason we'd bother to watch the crap that masquerades as television news. As Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses tributed, Bronnie has spent 30 years enjoying the benevolence of the public purse, pursuing the issues she cares about. Which probably explains why she's back on the back of the back benches. On the big news that matters, interesting sub-editorial juxtapositioning Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, across the bottom of P's 2 and 3, after we'd got past the excitement of the day's biggest world news on P1, half-page picky of swimsuit models, mostly surprise, surprise, not male, white hot. Glamour girl Jessica turned the temperature up to sizzling last night. Yes, another great department store catwalk sale. And by the by, the other great department store is having its catwalk sale this week. Different sizzling sales models, same theme. Whopping sin full of it. Well, well I said the news that matters. But, a, but P's 2, 3 across the bottom. P2, private mint casino owner and Sunday morning street boxing champ contender J.B. Puker had sold his little Sydney family home for a mere 70 million. 
P3 on the right, our old mate Gita Nohart had spaced out a mere 12 mil buying these beef cattle stations planning to become True Blue Aussie's biggest Wagyu operator. A little hobby on the side and in between the two filthy rich celebrating their filthy richness, welfare card trial to limit booze drugs. 100% at the other end of the wealth scale plan to prevent JB and Gina's victims from getting their hands on any money. Cash-free welfare cards. But although this junior parliamentary lackey Alan Fudge the facts says it's definitely not aimed at indigenous communities... Although Al admits two-thirds of the poorest of the poor who just don't know how to handle money obviously would be Indigenous, just coincidental, apparently. Oh, and with the white-hot sizzling bikinis and a big spread about the Lone Pine slaughter, which helped forge our great values, more trained killing tributes by the heroes we must admire who just love a bit of war of trained killing, the whopping sin couldn't manage one word about the 70th anniversary of Hiroshima, same day. Society, decent, respectable society, has to put up with a lot, doesn't it? Gina and Jamie have to put up with those black bludgers sponging on society. We know the trauma evil unions impose, and this week those bloody environmentalists used, well abused, the federal court to show Adani the environment's Galilee Basin megamine had failed to meet environmental requirements, particularly concerning a skink and a bloody ornamental snake. Adani the environment plans jobs, 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 profit, 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 And what value a bloody skink and silly snake. So now add to what they have to put up with, the bloody courts, which everyone knows are there to protect them, should protect them. They make the laws and the courts carry them out. Well, poor Fry the Planet Minister Jeff Hunt the Greenies, who in two years in the job has approved, real figure, a trillion dollars plus of mining projects, was so angry. The long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work at an iron lot were abusing the legal system to delay big mining projects. Poor Jeff exploded. Not sure if Jeff's a lawyer or not, but abusing? Obviously, Jeff hadn't twigged. The environmental abusers won the case on a legal point that he hadn't done his job properly. Jeff seemed to miss that point by roughly 100%. But he's given a 100% guarantee he'll now review the matter legally, look at it independently, give the environmental damage, if there would be any, the consideration it deserves, and then approve the project in the shortest possible time. Yes, the separation of powers. Putting the socialist argument on environmental damage, the Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Mining Profits Minister, said his government was extremely disappointed at the judgment. Are we, like the people of Central Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, want to see this mine go ahead, he told us. Now, the case was brought by the Mackay Conservation Group, so obviously Mackay, or lots of its people, have ceased to exist, have floated offshore somewhere. And with due respect to the good old ornamental stake at the centre of all this, uh, we have to concede its environment is under threat from all these other stakes in the grass. 
caring employers have embraced those particularly neoliberal con missions recommendations they should pay pay workers lots less money balanced by lots less conditions pointing out this would be a win-win situation for themselves and for lazy avaricious workers the perfectly symbiotic win-win situation expressed logically by the true blue aussie metal and mine profits associations steve not happy who acknowledged that while the report addressed some priority issues overall it falls short of the systematic reform we so desperately need uh, in what way steve uh, well my reading of the report leads me to believe that there are some circumstances in which we may still have to pay wages. Tell me, how can that help productivity? Hmm, strong point. And, and one commentator said not having to pay hospitality staff meant caring employers would obviously pass on the savings in higher wages for workers throughout the rest of the week. Oh, big chance. Although as he was attempting to slice some pork, the bloody pig took off, last seen flying around the kitchen. And another restaurateur... Now, they tell us they have to put a surcharge, a loading on weekend prices to offset the crippling wages bill. Well, this restaurateur said the savings from not paying workers could mean restaurants could improve the quality of the food. Surely, listener, he wasn't saying they were imposing a surcharge for inferior food. Uh, surely not. I, I must have misunderstood. And the Chamber of Profits' Kate Carnor bosses attacked evil unions for a scare campaign. Individual contracts would allow for penalty rates to be traded off, provided workers were better off. Uh, Kate, small question. A student working weekends only told she he will only get work if she he trades off penalty rates. Uh, just explain that better off bit. Anyway, any lingering doubt this might not be the best thing for workers was extinguished by that champion of socialist struggle, Martin Cliché, quoted in turn by some nondescript Western True Blue Aussie senator who said the Socialist Party could not portray itself as a champion of the workers if it opposed recommendations to abolish wages and conditions. The report has been broadly welcomed by business, by economists, and even by some lions of the union movement who put job creation ahead of playing politics. Doesn't take much imagination to take an accurate stab at just who. Yes, Marty Cliché, who said dismissing the report would, at the end of a day, only be detrimental to workers. I was going to say some people's lion is other people's scratch my belly and I'll purr kitten, but we surely must have more respect for the kitten than to say that. And part of the report that hasn't had a lot of publicity is that the rights of workers to take action on unfair dismissal be declared unfair. But Tiny and Team True Blue Aussie introduce a much fairer no-fault dismissal system allowing workers to be sacked. Uh, sorry, sadly, let go at will with a paid notice period, although the commission itself said it did foresee the odd problem with this. Like I hear you say, caring employers could just sadly let go staff at will. Well, no, 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 no. They were worried bloody evil workers might exploit this deliberately engage in misconduct in order to get the payout. Obviously, workers are desperate to be unemployed. And the con mission just as obviously knows just how evil workers are. 
This report for the Minerals Profits Council of Troublers, he seeks to solve that problem with a very practical solution. Get the evil unions out of the equation altogether. If unions weren't involved in negotiations, workers would be far better off, they report. There is evidence that greater competition in the provision of collective bargaining services would enhance the performance of Troublu Aussie's labour market. Opening up trade unions to greater competition is not an anti-union measure. Of course not. Who'd think that? It's a wonderful thing, competition policy, isn't it? Ah, yes, the Minerals Profits Council volunteered. We would be more than happy to represent our workers in negotiations with us. Unlike evil unions who only see one side of the story, we believe we are capable of representing both sides of this no such thing as class struggle negotiation, ourselves and them, through which we can achieve a win-win situation. Indeed, win-win-win. Oh, and finally, notice Kellogg says it will ban artificial flavours and colours from its cereals. In future, it would just sell people an empty box, which, to their credit, would be a lot more healthy. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And as I always say, you can hear more of Mr Kevin Healy at 9am tomorrow morning with Corey Green with City Limits, which goes until 10 o'clock. And you can listen to this and many other programs on 3CR other than 3CR on your radio dial, 8.55am or ABC, not ABC, 3CR Digital. You can get onto the web and 3cr.org.au and this program and all others stream for a week so you can catch this program for a whole week and then it goes on to the next week or you can podcast the programs, most of the programs now, or many of the programs, not the music programs so much, but the spoken word programs are podcast, and you can find all that information on 3cr.org.au. The Melbourne Street Medics need your help. On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper-sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people, and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics, or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. If you love science, put your money where your mouth is. It's time once again for you to test your brain capacity at the Lost in Science Trivia Night. We don't expect you to perform complex calculus, but maybe brush up on your periodic table. And support us. Our entry is $15 for 3CR subscribers or concession, $20 for everybody else. It's happening at the Birmingham Hotel, corner of Johnson Street and Smith Street. In Fitzroy, Tuesday the 18th of August. Doors will be open at 6.30pm. Check the 3CR website for details or book your tickets beforehand on Eventbrite by searching for Lost in Science Trivia 2015. Lost in Science is a 3CR production. Earlier this year, Professor Graham Clark, Australian ear surgeon who developed the world's first commercial multi-channel cochlear implant, received one of engineering's top prizes. With four other cochlear implant pioneers, 
from the US and Austria. He is the recipient of a half a million US dollar Russ Prize. He established his first cochlear implant in 1978 and received private and government funding to fully develop his invention. The result, Cochlear Limited earned over $800 million last year. But like many success stories in business, there is a dark side. And with Cochlear, it's exploitation of animals, using live animals in research and experiments. And in this instance, the research methods are particularly abhorrent. It is testing its famous bionic ear on 16 cats, for which the company has paid almost $450,000 to be deafened. In the studio with me is the CEO of Humane Research Australia, Helen Marston. HRA is an organisation which challenges the use of animals in research and promotes the use of more humane and scientifically valued non-animal alternatives. Helen, was there a whistleblower to expose this cruelty? We don't know who the source is. The information was sent to us anonymously in the mail and we're not questioning that. Can you explain? We were already aware that the Bionics Institute were using cats and kittens in deafness research and in blindness research and we have looked into that and put a case study on our website. Coincidentally, some information arrived in the mail about a contract that was signed in December between the Bionics Institute and Cochlear Limited. That agreement showed that they were going to purchase 16 cats at a cost, uh, not just for the cats, but the whole cost of $450,000 contract, um, included purchasing 16 cats, which they were going to render completely deaf in order to test cochlear implants. How do you render a cat deaf? Looking at a previous study, which we believe this is based on, they injected them with a certain chemical every day until they were completely deaf. And then? After about eight weeks of age, those cats had surgery to have a cochlear implant device implanted into their inner ear. Then they underwent chronic stimulation with electrodes. That involved being placed in a stereotaxic frame, which is a metal frame to make the animal quite still. They were anaesthetised, they had a craniotomy performed on them to expose the auditory cortex and then they conducted recordings through the brain and they were killed at the end of that process. Where do they get the cats from? We believe it was from a facility that purposely breeds cats for research within the university. The University of Melbourne? That's right. So this might be going on for many, many years. This is one experiment or one project But cochlea's been, as you said, been going for a long time. Is there any evidence that they've been using animals in such a way right from the beginning? I don't know how far back it goes, but there are many publications in scientific journals that show that they have used mostly cats in both blindness and deafness studies in similar research to this. Where are the ethics committees in experiments such as this? Unfortunately, I think ethics committees are seen as a viable way of using these animals to show that they have they can they have considered their welfare 
we don't believe that they are effective because there are animal welfareists on that committee who represent animals, but they are not necessarily sufficiently qualified to, to challenge the justification of using those animals. All they can look at is simple welfare issues. And looking at a lot of research over the years, not just by cochlear and, and, and bionics, but other institutions, we have found so many experiments that we have to question how did an ethics committee approve that experiment. They're quite ghastly. Can you give some examples without too much description? Okay, well, going over the past few years, we've exposed cases of shaking lambs to death to prove shaken baby syndrome giving drugs such as ecstasy and marijuana to rats and mice to show that it relaxes them. A lot of these experiments are so questionable because you have to query how that this information relates to humans, first of all. How can you extrapolate from one species to another? And similarly, there are so many humans who are drinking alcohol, taking drugs, and we can study the effects directly from them if we chose. This type of research began in the 19th century. We're now in the second decade of the 21st century. Yet in Australia, just Australia, millions of animals are being exploited in this manner. And we're not talk just talking about cats and dogs, which people might have a feeling for, but there's all the other animals that people might think, oh, well, they're just rats and they're just mice. They're just, you know. Well, just rats and just mites That's how people are might very feel. different to humans. Uh, regardless of whether you have any compassion for those animals, they have a different genetic makeup, a different metabolism, a different anatomy. So whatever data you get from, those, from testing on those animals can't be relied upon to using humans. And in fact, when you think that 9 out of 10 drugs that are successful in animal tests fail in human clinical trials, it makes you question our methodologies. And it's not just drugs, it's household products. Are they still blinding rabbits and doing dreadful things to animals for cosmetics? At the moment they do, but there's a big push for that and we're very hopeful that the government will address this in the very near future. Do you have statistics of just how many animals are being used in Australia or do the departments keep these secret, these figures? They try to keep it secret because it's very difficult to get correct figures. Some states don't provide them at all. Others are years in arrears. But we do collate national figures from each state department and our calculations show that over 6 million animals are used every year in Australia alone. That rates really badly across the world because we are the fourth highest user of animals in research behind only China, Japan and the United States. So we really do need to lift our game. So does that mean that these other countries have found alternatives to using animals? They're certainly working on them. A lot of these countries have got government-funded institutions that are dedicated to the development and validation of finding alternatives. Unfortunately, we don't have any such thing in Australia and our government doesn't seem to have that commitment. And also training doctors. I remember years ago with Andrew Knight, he developed computer programs to doing experiments so that you didn't have to use animals. Has that been expanded in, within Australia and overseas? Unfortunately, in Australia, it's just come to light with us that there is a lot of animals used in surgical training, and we're looking at that at the moment. It is practice that's being phased out in other countries, and I just actually received an email this morning from PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, that said that now only three hospital training places in, in America are using live animals. So we would like to see that happen over here, that these uh, alternative models are used. And of course it's a huge industry, isn't it? 
using animals. It's not just the products that come out of them. It's the, the research scientists, it's the people that work in these facilities, it's the universities themselves that get money from it. It is. It is. They get grants, and a lot of the grants are publicly funded through the National Health and Medical Research Council. So that's another issue that we're concerned about, is that a lot of people oppose animal experiments, but we're actually supporting it or funding it through our tax dollars, and, and people should be aware of that. And then they have things like Daffodil Day, which people don't know is being used. And every time you hear a, a, a cancer cure just around the corner, well, who's suffering for that cure? Well, the animals. A lot of animals have been cured of cancer through these experiments, but unfortunately it doesn't work in humans, so we have to go back to the drawing board. Tell me about some of the animals that have been released from these laboratories. It is possible, isn't it? It is possible. Recently there's been a review of the Code of Practice, and there is a clause in it that now says that, that they should be considering rehoming animals at the end of their use. Now there's a wonderful group in Australia called Beagle Freedom. You might have heard from, about their work overseas. They have a network of people around Australia and they are working, making negotiations with universities to release animals. Obviously they have to be quite limited in what they can speak out about, about what kind of research the animals were used in. But it, there are some wonderful success stories and we've actually got happy endings on our website which shows a couple of individuals, which is great because it actually puts a face to those statistics. I mean, we could talk about six million animals used every year which doesn't mean that much, but when you see that every one of those animals is an individual like the ones that we featured, it, makes, it brings the message home. But then again, how many of the animals actually survive? Absolutely. And some of them are in such a terrible state that it would be inhumane to make them carry on. So it's better that they are killed. What's in the pipeline for you at the moment? Where are you moving to to try and focus people and to get the general public to focus on what is happening? That's the important thing too, isn't it? Because if people knew what was done in, being done in their name, they might not accept it so, quite so easily. Yep, there's a couple of campaigns that we are focusing on. We've recently launched our Ban Primate Experiments campaign because we found so few people are even aware that primates are used for research in Australia, but we do use marmosets, macaques and baboons in very, very invasive research. So we're drawing attention to that, raising public awareness. And the reason we've chosen to focus on primates is that if we can argue that data from primates, our closest relatives, is not close enough to humans to make it worthwhile, then that makes the argument against using rats and mice and further genetically removed animals even stronger. And secondly, if we can't get the public sympathy and compassion for our closest relatives, then sadly rats and mice don't stand much chance. So by focusing on primates, we believe that we are raising the bar for all animals used in research. Just to get back to where we begin, began with cochlea, have they been contacted to, for comment on this project? Absolutely. We wrote to Cochlear and to the Bionics Institute before this campaign even got into the public eye. We're still waiting for a response and need to follow that up. And the reporter who, who published that article has also tried contacting them and they won't comment. I don't imagine people who have been fitted with the bionic ear, some of those people have, have come out and said, well, we're not really happy about this either, you know, that an animal should suffer so that we get here. That's what we've learned. The reporter, Sam DeBurito, actually contacted some of these groups, including Deaf Australia, and they were quite shocked. But one thing of interest, we found that there are a number of 
charities in Australia that focus on auditory health that are on a humane charities list, which means they don't test on animals. And they can be found at humanecharities.org.au. And your organisation, your website is? We are humaneresearch.org.au. And that people can get a lot of information about various things on your website. Yes. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. And thanks to Helen from humaneresearch.org.au. And that's Helen Marsden. And the other webpage she goes gave us was humanecharities.org.au. It is possible to stop this torture. And it is torture of animals worldwide, not just here in Australia. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of Agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. On the program in recent weeks, we've heard from activists who travelled to northern Queensland to demonstrate against the war preparation games known as Talisman Sabre. Today, a spotlight on the Northern Territory part of the Ward Games. I spoke with Justin Tutty, the founder of Base Watch in Darwin, a group concerned about the presence of foreign bases that cast a shadow over our regional relationships. Preparations for Talisman Sabre, what was it like in those days before they all arrived? I don't think it really hit the local consciousness too much. There wasn't really much impact around town until the activities began. When did the activities begin? So it's a few weeks ago now, and they kicked off with an amphibious assault on one of our public beaches. These activities used to occur in previous war rehearsals over in Queensland, but this year, for the first time, the American amphibious craft landed on public beaches around Darwin. Can you describe an amphibious craft? It's a very large hovercraft, large enough to carry a number of vehicles and personnel. It hovers over the water and once it's on the beach then it it drives on tracks. What warnings were people given that these machines were coming? There was some pre-warning about one of the beaches further around but I was quite surprised to wake up one day to the news that amphibious craft were landing on the beach just a kilometre from my home. So it is an inhabited area where they came? Yeah, I, I live in one of the northernmost suburbs 
surrounded by a conservation reserve, a coastal conservation reserve. And so I was very surprised to find that the large American Navy craft were landing on my local beach. And there was more than one? On that occasion, there was one craft which made multiple visits between the ship, which was over the horizon, and my local beach. What was the reaction of the local residents? Just a few people turned up, I guess, on the day to gawk, have a bit of a look. You know, some people were enthusiastic, some not so. People were a bit annoyed a few days later when it was revealed that there was an oil leak on the beach. And was that fixed up? The American personnel came and removed the contaminated sand. How did you express your concern? When I woke to that news, I recognised an opportunity to demonstrate my opposition to the growing foreign military presence in Darwin. I walked down to my local beach and when I saw where the other craft were coming in and out, I walked out in the water to try to obstruct their activity. I was surprised actually that they didn't stop and wait for me to be removed, but instead this large hovercraft kept rushing back and forth past me as I was in the water. Was it sort of an intimidation? Yeah, maybe. Perhaps it was a message. I was surprised. I didn't think it would work that way, but I ended up standing in the water for about an hour as it went back and forth past me a few times before the regular police came and picked me up. So they would have been well aware that you were there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And how did the police get you out? Did you go onto the beach or did they come into the water to get you? A boat came and picked me up at Tinny. And you were arrested? Yeah, I was actually charged with disturbing the peace. (laughs) Did they explain what the peace was? I still don't understand how that works, but um, I guess when I go to court later next month I'll find out. Have you demonstrated at the previous one when they had it in Darwin or there wasn't so much activity then? Yeah, this is by far the largest uh, Northern Territory component of these biannual war rehearsals. In the past, really, um, the major part that Darwin sees is the R&R afterwards. This year, with multiple amphibious landings on public beaches, we've definitely seen a lot more activity than ever before. What about planes flying overhead, warplanes and ships in the harbour? What was that like? We had a visit from, from the large warship, but also from a number of smaller destroyers. And really, there's been a lot, of, a lot more Air Force activity than there ever used to be for the last 12 months. And what is that activity? That must in part be due to the new development of co-location of US Air Force assets and personnel at RAF Base Darwin, which is right here in the middle of Darwin. So there has been a lot of focus and attention on the basing of the American Marines here, but at the same time we've seen a build-up of US Air Force assets in Darwin. I'm not too aware of hardware. I, I don't know it too well, and I haven't had a very good look. There hasn't been any formal public engagement about that. In, any of the public information has been about the Marines, but there has been... Um, some discussion about the build-up of US Air Force in Darwin, proposals for long-range bombers to be based here in Darwin. And certainly ever since last year's Air Force exercises, we've just had a continuation of military aircraft noise. Well, it's OK where I am, because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of out on the northern edge of the suburbs. There's certainly suburban areas where it's very invasive and causes a lot of distress to local residents. Are people complaining? Yeah, they are in those areas. There there used to be strong resident action groups who came some level of agreement with the RAF over 
hours of operations and what activities would happen because that RAF base is right in the middle of the suburbs and so it's surrounded by suburban areas. But it seems that with the influx of the US Air Force, all those past agreements are out the window and we've recently heard about extended operations perhaps six months of the year. Have they done anything to the the harbour to enable bigger ships to come in, bigger warships to come in? Uh, there's been heaps of dredging in the harbour, but that's for you know for recent industrial expansion. What about social problems with so many troops in and around Darwin? Is that obvious? So far, not so much. So um, this is the fourth year of the Marines being here, and we still don't have the full number. We're expecting that next year their number will double from about 1,200 to 2,500. And in these early years, it's been largely a diplomatic mission and they've been quite open about that and it's it's good and appropriate that their main focus for the first couple of years was just to come and say hello and and to get on well with locals and that's great. Two years ago in the previous war rehearsals there was one alleged rape and I guess some local people who have past experience of crimes committed by foreign forces here in Darwin are very concerned about how this risk is not being managed. What's the environmental impact of, of so many men coming, or I suppose there's a few women coming to, and moving also moving outside of Darwin into the maybe the, the, um, the hinterland of um, Northern Territory with these war machines? The ADF has its own bombing ranges and training facilities and they're all being shared with the visiting forces. At some point there was concern expressed about deterioration or additional impact on those facilities but I don't have any detail on that. Obviously there was you know acute impact on our public beaches just recently including landing on sensitive turtle nesting habitat but yeah I I guess that that kind of impact should be subject to the sort of assessment that would apply to any non-military proposal or operation and it hasn't been. And have the local Aboriginal people been consulted if they're going to have these exercises on land outside of Darwin? Well, the exercises and all the activities are uh, being held on land that is um, alienated and in the possession of the Defence Forces. So these public beaches obviously um, have cultural as well as, as well as other values. I did see that the... ADF engaged local traditional owners in removing turtle eggs from one of the beaches, which I I suppose was a valuable thing. And I've spoken to people who say that they expressed concerns about cultural sites. That's about all I know about that, though. Have you been aware that there's a possible training facilities on Tiwi Islands? Yeah. There has been some discussion about what designs the US Marines might have on Tiwi Islands because of the recent development of a much larger port there. It came to air through a Senate committee hearing a couple of months ago that the Land Council on the island has been in meeting with the USA Marines about their use of the port. And since then, there have been rumours about what further activities the Americans might like to pursue on the island. As we said, Justin, it's now a couple of weeks since the exercise is completed. How would you sum it up and what are your concerns for the future? 
I would sum it up just to say that obviously the growing American presence means that Darwin and the ENT are bearing a greater burden of those biannual war games. Where we're going for the ENT is still a bit unclear. This presence continues to grow and it still appears to locals to be unbounded. And so I think it's really up to us about what we're going to do to engage with it and to try to set limits to it. And what role do you believe you have in that? I think right now we aren't being granted a role, so it's up to locals to demand a role, to, to recognise what risks are presented by this growing foreign military presence and demand a role in setting sensible boundaries to it. And do you believe that there are more and more people willing to put themselves up and complain and say they yeah, need look, a role? Yeah. People in Darwin are very relaxed to begin with and there is a lot of goodwill towards the Americans. But at the same time, people who've been here a while are aware of a range of risks. And I think that as the Marines reach their full number, and now with this experience of an expanded war game scenario, more local people are going to step up and take a role in trying to manage it. Thank you. No worries, Jan. Thank you. And great big thanks to Justin Tutty, who set up Base Watch after Mr Obama decided he'd have his... Asian pivot, came to Australia, came to Darwin and said, this is it, boys and girls, we're going to have an American base, a proper American base in the Northern Territory, and that stirred Justin up and Base Watch was the result. It's 4.41 and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Mahindra Rajapaksa, who lost his presidency of Sri Lanka in an election in January, to the now present Mathrapala Sirisena, announced on the 12th of July that he intended to run for the position of Prime Minister in elections this month. I spoke with... Sri Lankan-Australian human rights activist Dr Brian Sinuratna. I'll put these two quotes to you. First, Rajapaksa. Today, people want a change. I'm leading the campaign with President Sirisena as the chairman of the party to form a Sri Lankan Freedom Party-led government. And another article. President Sirisena, who is the leader of the Sri Lankan Freedom Party, has rejected... Rajapaksa's demand to name him as the Prime Minister candidate 
in the party. What's the real story? Uh, the real story is that Sirisena came in on the 8th of January and did what everybody must applaud. I mean, he had the courage to take on his former boss, uh, Rajapaksa, knowing full well that if he lost, he would be, in his words, seven foot underground, which indeed he would have been. So he had the guts to do that. After that, it's been a disaster. He came uh, with a 100-point program to move mountains, and he had not moved anything. I have described him, as I have done in the, with the past regime. You see, Sri Lanka has had two presidents, one a de facto president and a de jure or elected, elected president. On the former regime, Mr. Mahindra Rajapaksa was only the elected president. The de jure president was Gotabe Rajapaksa, his murderous brother. In the present setup, Sirisena is the elected president. The de facto president has been running Vikram Singer from the United Nations National Party, which is, has opposed the Sri Lanka Freedom Party for decades. He has been effectively the president. What happened to, uh, to Sirisena, God only knows. But he has been in hibernation for about five months. He suddenly woke up about uh, maybe uh, three weeks ago. And for the first time, he challenged uh, Rajapaksa uh, slightly too late and said, I will not nominate Rajapaksa as the prime minister, even if he wins a majority of seats in parliament. I don't think that's going to be possible. For a start, uh, Rajapaksa is not going to win a majority of seats. He'd be lucky if he wins his own seat. He comes from the south of Siwan, Sri Lanka, and they have come for decades. And so did his father, and everybody has come from the south of Siwan. This time he has been told that if he contests a seat in the south of Siwan, around where he lives, he will lose it. And therefore he has unbelievably is coming forward as a candidate in the, the Sinhalese part of the middle of Sri Lanka, Kurnagala district, which uh, listeners would not know but it's miles and miles away from uh, his home. You're very lucky, actually, to have been a seat there. Mr. Sirisena miscalculated when he produced his 100-day plan. He miscalculated that the man doesn't have more than 48 seats in a 225-seat uh, parliament. So the man didn't have control of parliament, let alone uh, of the country. And they passed the vote of no confidence, actually, on his prime minister. And it went through. Now, Rajapaksa is planning a return in his normal megalomaniac manner. He said that his own statistics, of course, worked out by his stooges, said that he will get 7 million votes rather than 4 million at the presidential election. Now, that, of course, won't happen. But he has done enough to confuse the Sri Lankan Sinhalese people, who are actually the people who have a major say in what goes on in Sri Lanka. They have gone to the extent, and you wouldn't believe this, of even concocting a bogus report supposedly going to be tabled in the United Nations Human Rights Council, which says that Rajapaksa is going to be held responsible probably taken to the International Criminal Court. Now, nothing of this has happened, but a false report is being circulated appealing to the Sinhalese people 
Mandela, a war hero such as myself and all the other military, to go to an international criminal court. Therefore, you have to block this somehow. And that is an appeal for the Sinhalese people to object to the report uh, to be tabled in the UN Human Rights Council. The report's not out. There's not even a trace of what's going to be uh, in that report. But the bogus report is very much out. That's the level to which these people stoop in Sri Lanka. The more important thing is from where the Tamils are concerned. Sirisena has not mentioned the word Tamil in all these six months that he had been there. So from the point of view of the Tamils in the north and the east, nothing has changed and nothing will change. In fact, it's worse. He has stated, and so has the Prime Minister, that the military will remain in charge of the north and the east. The north and the east, where the Tamils live, is going to be a military state now and for the foreseeable future. That brings in Australia. If the military are going to be in charge of the north and the east, as is certain, then the same violation of human rights is going to go on in the Tamil areas. People are going to jump into boats, and whether Mr. Abbott likes it or not, they are going to head this way. And I, as a former, and I stress former, supporter of the Labour Party, find it outrageous that the Labour Party should jump into bed with uh, Abbott. I never thought I will live to see that day. I joined the Greens Party some time ago, and I had actually a, a letter from Sir Hanson Young uh, appealing to all of us to express outrage at what the Labour Party has done, and I think we should. So who are the Tamils going to vote for in the election? Uh, it's an interesting question. The TNA, which is the Tamil National Alliance, actually is in bed with the Sinhalese leaders. Tamils have no one to vote for. The Tamils who want some change or to have some a voice heard in Parliament have to contest on independence. Whether they will find the money and the facilities and the ability to do that and make their voice heard, God only knows. The former Tamil Tigers who have been rehabilitated, they are coming forward as a political group. And I hope that they will get into Parliament because they have the guts to say what is going on. But the greatest thing that has happened to the Tamils, I think in the last quarter of a century, is that the Tamils have at last found a leader in the form of former Supreme Court Judge Justice Vigneswaran. And for the first time in many years, there is actually a Tamil voice which is credible, articulate and courageous. He has just given two talks, one in London, one in Los Angeles, where he has been absolutely outstanding. Whether Vigneswaran can have any major effect in Parliament, because he is not coming forward as a parliamentary candidate, is to be seen. But he is certainly uh, mobilizing the Tamils in the North, not in a military sort of way, but to uh, record their protests. For example, 17-year-old Tamil girl was raped. See, incidentally, not by the armed forces, but by a Tamil who lives in Switzerland, who runs a drug cartel in the North. The culprits were rounded up, not by the police, but by the civilian Tamils, and handed over to the police. And the police had their arms twisted to release this guy, and he appeared in Colombo, 
When the Tamils in the north heard that this rapist had escaped, they ground Jaffna in the north to a halt. Everything stopped. So much so that Sinsena got so alarmed that for the first time he flew up to Jaffna to say, you know, please calm it, we have re-arrested him. But the very fact that people in a military state should have the courage to get out on the streets and say, no, enough is enough. Uh, at least I'm encouraged by that. What's happening with the economy in Sri Lanka? Oh, the economy, that's disastrous. We are actually broke completely. The total gross national product is just about enough to pay for the loans and the interest because the resources of the country have been robbed by the Rajapaksas big time. In addition to building all sorts of unnecessary Chinese loaned projects such as the airport in the south of Sri Lanka and of course another port. Sri Lanka has to pay 250 million rupees, that's about 25 million dollars monthly as a servicing loan for the airport built by Rajapaksa which gets only one single flight a day. Maintaining the airport costs another 250 million rupees. So 500 million rupees monthly to the Chinese for uh, running a completely useless airport. The harbour, starting from this year, Sri Lanka has to pay 7 billion rupees annually to service a loan also to China uh, to run this uh, uh, harbour in Hambantota in the south. Now, this is just the tip of the iceberg. The major part is that the country is reeling in debt. And they have applied to the IMF for a loan. And for the first time that I know of, the IMF has said, go to hell. They're not going to give you any more money. What's in it for China to lend all this money to Sri Lanka? Good question. That is to get a foothold in Sri Lanka to monitor what is going on in the Indian Ocean and to safeguard the oil supply from the Middle East to China and the goods from, manufactured goods from China going the other way around. You see, I think it was uh, a U.S. Admiral Mahan who a hundred years ago said, whoever controls the Indian Ocean controls Asia. China knows full well that if America or England or any other country uh, or India gets a foothold in Sri Lanka, that's it from the point of view of the Indian Ocean. Well, I'd imagine the U.S. aren't just sitting back and letting that happen. No, but you see, the U.S. is playing its own games. It passed its resolution in the United Nations. That was supposedly on behalf of the Tamil people. It had nothing to do with the Tamil people at all. It was to get a regime change in Colombo to look at Washington rather than Beijing. Now that they've got their man in Colombo, they might uh, lose all interest. You're quite right. They are not going to sit back and allow China to take, take over. But at the same time, they're not going to go to war with China over some miserable little country there. India the same. India's changing stance towards the situation in Sri Lanka is abominable, really, for a major country. Now, I mean, you've got to accept that the entire world uh, looks to India. And what India says holds. If India says a separate country, a divided country, that holds. India will never say that 
because that will lead to a division in India. But the more important thing is what is going to happen on the 17th when the general elections uh, in Sri Lanka are slated. Mr. Rajapaksa hopes to come back, which he won't. Uh, what he will do is to split the vote and create a thoroughly unstable parliament. What's going to happen from there, I don't know. But the plan, Rajapaksa's plan, was to become prime minister, which he won't. And having become prime minister, then pass a vote of no confidence on the president and impeach him. And that won't, I hope, not happen. It depends upon my people, the Sinhalese, whether they have enough sense to keep Rajapaksa out disgustingly. Sirisena said that he would not nominate Rajapaksa to even contest a seat because he is the head of the party. He can decide on who the nominations of the party are. And that is exactly the opposite of what he did. He nominated Rajapaksa because he is afraid. The man's a coward. He hadn't got the guts to face up to the uh, Rajapaksa clan who are in a position to create chaos in Sri Lanka. I tell you right now that Sri Lanka is in the worst situation now, economically, politically, uh, human rights-wise, than it has ever been. And the Tamil people are prob probably worse. Because, see, the world was aware that uh, Rajapaksa is a crook, and the whole family were crooks. They looked at Sisena and said, ah, he is a reasonable man, we can trust him. Well, they might be able to trust Mrs. Sisena, but he doesn't have the guts and he doesn't have the backing to do what he promised to do. Actually, he had promised to do nothing for the Tamil people, and even for the Sinhalese people in the South. Sisen is weak, no question about that. And he has said that this is the first and last time that he will be a president. So it's a one-time president, and after that he's gone. And hopefully uh, Rajapaksa will not step into his shoes. This has really major implications for Australia uh, by way of asylum seekers. And I uh, revert to this, that uh, point that I made, that at least we had the Labour Party to oppose uh, uh, Abbott. And we don't now, because they're both in the same camp. And it's only less than a week now to the elections in Sri Lanka. That's Brisbane doctor Brian Sinmaratna who's been a human rights activist for over 60 years. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Melbourne Street Medics need your help. 
On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper-sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people, and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics, or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. Kathy Peters is a Sydney-based radio documentary producer and a number of these, including Focusing on Palestine, have been played on the ABC this year and in the recent past. Kathy is also a former Greens councillor who was involved in a Marrickville Council vote in 2010 to endorse BDS, that's the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, and who were slandered by the media for their position, whereas local councils regularly make ethically informed decisions about their external engagements and purchasing policies. The BDS is now in its 11th year, and I spoke to Cathy recently and asked her first if she would briefly explain the background to BDS for those listeners who might not be aware of its genesis. 2005, about uh, 128 groups from civil society in Palestine put out the call for BDS. It is a non-violent method of resisting the occupation and they're calling for a boycott until Israel fully complies with the precepts of international law by ending its occupation and colonisation of all Arab lands, by dismantling the wall, until Israel recognises the fundamental rights of the Arab Palestinian citizens in Israel to full equality, and also until Israel protects and promotes the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and properties, which was stipulated in UN Resolution 194. It's grown exponentially since then into a worldwide campaign movement that's had various successes, mostly in, uh, in Europe and England. Can you talk about some of those successes? Let's just look back, say, 2013. The European Union issued guidelines that uh, stated explicitly that no UN grants, prizes or financial instruments, such as loans could be issued to any Israeli entities that operated beyond the Green Line, including the West Bank, East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. So this has been very clear that that's targeting settlements and businesses working in settlements, that they're not going to be able to go for EU, European Union grants, prizes or loans. The British government has also warned all businesses just last year, in 2014, that trading with Israeli settlements in the West Bank was unadvisable and that it um, didn't encourage or support any, any such activity, including any financial transactions, investments, purchases and procurements. In the Netherlands, their largest pension fund has withdrawn all its investments from Israel's five largest banks because they have branches in the West Bank in the settlements and are involved in financing the settlements. The Norwegian Ministry of Finance has excluded Israeli firms from its government pension fund. One of the largest pension funds, superannuation funds in the US, TIAA, BREF, has divested from SodaStream, which is a company working out of, or was working out of one of the settlements in the West Bank, but they've actually moved. And uh, so it goes on. There have been some strong statements supporting the BDS from the Presbyterians in the US and from other church groups, even in Australia, 
a united group of churches have come out advising that people don't support any settlement goods. You know, the movement's gathering a lot of strength, I'd say. What about the Arab countries? Are they involved at all? Some are. I haven't got a lot of information about what's happening in the Arab countries. Obviously, a lot of it's written in Arabic, but the information, or there's a lot of information on the um, BNC, the Boycott National Committee website, you can check there to get really an overview of all the BDS actions around the world. And so I'm sure you'd find lots of examples of different sorts of boycotts in the Arab countries. Also important are the, the number of entertainers from Europe and America who, who have said we're not going to perform in Israel. Yeah, that's growing. That's a very effective form of boycott. Led by Roger Waters from Pink Floyd, going back many years and moving on from there, many, many high-profile artists have refused to play in Israel. And it's having its effect, you know. This, um, this strikes at the heart of Israel's image of itself. This sort of isolation will have an impact and will you know, make the ordinary Israeli sit up and think, you know, actually wonder about what's happening in their country and, you know, why they're becoming a pariah. I was interested to see what impact it's having in South Africa because the the BDS was based on the role of um, people to get rid of apartheid. Look, the South African um, BDS movement is huge. It's a national movement. They are leading the charge, claiming that the apartheid practised in Israel is worse than anything that was seen in South Africa. At the moment, they're leading a charge against Woolworths right throughout South Africa because of um, their trade uh, with Israel. Uh, they're seeking that Woolworths stop selling all Israeli products. Very, very strong BDS in South Africa, BDS movement in South Africa. What's the state of play here in Australia? Look, it's variable. There's uh, pockets of BDS actions in every state. I think what we've found in Australia, starting with the, um, particularly the, uh, the Mayfield Council support of BDS, was that there's a, a very strong and um, noisy backlash against uh, anyone who practices BDS or preaches BDS in Australia. But I think that hasn't deterred people looking for justice for Palestinians. In Queensland, there's a strong BDS movement. In South Australia, a FOPA have been looking and demonstrating, protesting outside one of the major chain stores because of their sale of cosmetics, secret, they're called, cosmetics from um, taken uh, from the Dead Sea, from the soil and mud at the Dead Sea. So that's been a protest, one of the longest ones, I think, in Australia against that company. Of course, these goods are not uh, marketed as Palestinian goods either. They're often always marketed as Israeli goods, even if they're made on Palestinian land in the West Bank, occupied Palestinian land in the West Bank. Sydney staff for BDS has come um, to the fore in recent years, supporting Professor Jake Lynch from the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University, who was... um, attacked by um, an Israeli law firm called Sharat Hadin, 
because of the centre's support for BDS. I don't know if you know much about that case, but ultimately uh, he, of course, was shown not to have breached the um, anti-discrimination laws of the country, and the case was proven to be, you know, what it was, which was a beat-up. But out of that grew uh, support on Sydney University campus for BDS, and so there are a lot of students and staff there who are, you know, providing information and um, setting up forums, so at least the subject can be discussed. And the, the Zionists like to say that this BDS is anti-Semitic, but there are a lot of Jewish people both here and overseas, who support BDS. Yes, definitely. That is used against anybody who criticises the State of Israel, not just BDS. But yes, Jews Against the Occupation here in Sydney uh, have supported BDS right from the beginning. And as I said, church groups are coming on board. Rabbis for Peace in the US are one of the strongest supporters of BDS. And so that claim of anti-Semitism can't be sustained, is unsustainable. Do we need more truth in labelling to enable people to know exactly where products are coming from so that they can exercise their right not to use these products if they believe that they're coming from settlement areas or areas under occupation? Oh, definitely. Definitely they do. How do people know? There is lots of information on the net. You know, as I said, the BNC committee has a very large website. But even in Melbourne, a group put out a BDS um, booklet, Australian Friends for Palestine, I think it was. That's a very comprehensive guide to the sorts of products that are um, being made in the occupied territories. But it's not just products. You're looking at major international companies that have facilitated the occupation over many, many years in, in total breach of international law. So you're looking at companies like G4S, Caterpillar, Veolia, you know, major multinationals. In Veolia's case, serviced all the settlements until recently. I mean, they're an example of a company that started to pull back on all its work in Israel and Palestine because of, you know, many believe, because of the impact of the boycott. Uh, they used to provide uh, lots of uh, garbage services, water services to all the settlements in the West Bank. Now they are still involved in the Jerusalem Light Rail, which again breaches international law because it's um, putting infrastructure on um, occupied territory and it's linking settlements which are considered illegal under international law from East Jerusalem into Jerusalem proper. So the Arabs have um, very much been involved in that project and they still are. But there are a number of large companies like Hewlett-Packard that... Uh, provide that is used you know to um in some of the equipment used in all of the checkpoints hundreds of checkpoints around the west bank it's not just products that are made in 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 the settlements but also a lot of the big companies that are in fact working with the israelis i guess in breaches of international law also the the push to deny academics coming to Australia and I imagine to other countries as well who are involved with universities which are on Palestinian land. I think there's some misunderstanding often about that. The BDS is not about boycotting individuals, not individual academics. It's about institutional links. 
with universities in Israel that are supporting the occupation. If an individual academic wants to work, study, you know, in any university, that person, unless I guess they're a staunch supporter and have written, you know, in great support of the Israeli current regime, is not a person that is going to be in any way boycotted. It is rather the institutional relations that Israeli universities have and want to have with uh, Western universities. And as you say, one of the universities uh, has extended onto Palestinian land, Jerusalem. But many of the universities, the Technion University, for example, are working to assist the Israeli government and the Israeli Defence Forces with development of weapons and strategies which are used, of course, against the Palestinians in the West Bank, in Gaza and East Jerusalem. You're listening to... Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett on Melbourne Radio Station 3CR and I'm speaking with radio documentary producer Cathy Peters. I asked Cathy next about the reaction by the Israeli government to the successes of the BDS movement in many countries. The Israelis have found the BDS to be one of the most potent threats to the status quo and status quo is of course what they want They want to be seen as a victim. They want to be seen as the only democracy in the Middle East. But uh, this is all being disrupted quite effectively by uh, the BDS. Israel has recognised BDS as a strategic threat. And in um, 2013, Netanyahu and uh, other government, government ministers met to discuss ways of fighting the BDS. Netanyahu was there, the foreign minister at the time, Lieberman, was there. The economics minister Naftali Bennett and then the strategic affairs minister Dynitz. Now these are pretty high level cabinet ministers who attended this meeting as well as um, representatives of the Mossad, uh, Shinbet, the coordinator of government activities in the territories. The proposal was to, inv- to invest substantial resources into a public campaign to the tune of 100 million shekels to pay for PR materials, and I quote here, PR materials and aggressive legal and media campaigns against pro-boycott organisations. Now, that 100 million shekels was equivalent at the time to about 31 million Australian dollars. Senior ministers also apparently discussed the need to initiate lawsuits in European and North American courts against pro-BDS organisations and take legal action against financial institutions that boycott settlements and uh, Israeli companies. They also discussed the possibility of, and I quote, encouraging anti-boycott legislation in friendly capitals around the world, such as Washington, Ottawa and Canberra, and activating the pro-Israel lobbies in this country, in these countries, for such a purpose. At the highest level of the Israeli government, they're out to try and silence and stop the BDS. One of the ways, of course, as you mentioned, to conflate racism and anti-Semitism with the BDS, to confuse people about the BDS, and that's very much what happened in Australia with the uh, Maritville Council BDS drama, which, of course, was led by the Labor Party at the time, who uh, used it to attack the Green Mayor of the time, who was also running in the state election against a strong Labor candidate, Carmel Tebbit. The BDS was then beaten up by Anthony Albanese, who uh, 
conflated it with racism and anti-Semitism. And as you can see from the Labor Party's latest national conference, I don't know what the statement was against the BDS, but they've um, condemned the BDS or refused to accept the BDS as a legitimate form of violent opposition to the Israeli government's breaches of international law. So in Australia, you know, I think the movement will still continue to grow as it will globally because it's an effective form of resistance to the occupation. It's something that people can do outside of Palestine to show their condemnation of the actions of Israel in, in Palestine and, and um, in the occupied territories. And it has been endorsed at high levels in the European Union and in other governments form of resistance to the ongoing breaches of international law by Israel. Can you talk a little about your work, Cathy, as a, a documentary maker and your contribution to exposing the plight of the Palestinians? And I should say, my father's Jewish. I grew up, you know, in an environment where I didn't know a lot about Israel, but I certainly had the same idea of a lot of other people that everything, you know, Israel was, you know, a light in the desert and brought greening of the desert and great centre for the emergence of, uh, you know, the kibbutz movement and, and the sort of socialist ethos that went with that. And so in later life, you know, as I was growing up, it became as a great surprise to see that that wasn't really the case and that, like Australia, the English declared that, you know, this was a terra nullius. So the Israelis declared that Palestine didn't exist, Palestinians didn't exist, there were no people here, there were no nomadic in indigenous people in the country. So my personal journey has been one of going there a couple of times, travelling to the Middle East, and as a radio journalist, meeting people, talking to them, and uh, hearing their side of the story. So I've made a couple of programs based on my trips in the West Bank, in the occupied territories, and in Gaza briefly in 2012. And I think if anyone wants to understand what's going on, then go to the West Bank. That's my advice. Go to the West Bank, look at the separation wall, go through the checkpoints, get a feel for what it's like living under a military occupation. It's, it's a harsh, uh, it's an unpredictable environment. It's a violent environment for many, many Palestinians. No form of protest is tolerated in the West Bank. You can't have a protest. Palestinians can't protest. If Palestinians walk uh, with their flags towards war, towards an illegal settlement on their land, as they do every week in a number of the um, of the towns and villages in, in the West Bank, uh, Berlin is one that comes to mind, and many people may have seen the film Five Broken Cameras, which almost won an Academy Award as Best Foreign Film a couple of years ago for a documentary. They are attacked mercilessly by the Israeli occupying forces with, you know, hundreds of rounds of tear gas and uh, rubber bullets, at times lethal, which are lethal, but other, other bullets as well. Uh, only the other day a young man was killed at the Kalandia checkpoint, which is the checkpoint, the major checkpoint between 
Ramallah and Jerusalem. And there's a large refugee camp there as well. So the situation there is is very, very tense, is very violent. Young men often are the ones who are killed all the time because they throw rocks, uh, try and show some defiance of the military occupation. So I've made a couple of radio documentaries. As I said, I've interviewed a large number of Palestinians from all walks of life, parents, young people, older people that have gone back to live in Palestine. I actually lived in the house of a couple of American Palestinians who raised their children in America but come back to live in their homeland again but their children wouldn't come back because of the situation, because of the impossibility of, of living a free life uh, and working, you know, working easily uh, in the country. The economy of Gaza has been destroyed, completely destroyed, and there's lots of evidence to prove that this, is, this has been a deliberate undertaking by the Israeli government to bring Gazans to the brink of starvation this has been done by limiting the amount of food that can come in into the beleaguered territory. There's very, very little export happening, so there's no economy at all. Unemployment is the highest of, of anywhere in the Middle East, I'd say. And about 80% of the population are reliant on um, UNHCR food, UNRWA actually, uh, food every day. These are facts. This is not, you know, some sort of fantasy. This is what's happening. And I think that a lot of Australians just don't get the opportunity to hear stories or see stories about what's going on until uh, events like the recent attack on uh, Gaza when 2,300 people were killed, Palestinians were killed, and um, 71, I think it was 71 or 72 Israeli soldiers were killed. This was an entirely disproportionate attack, another one, on Gazans. Really, the situation there is as grim as it was then. No new houses have been built, replacing, I think there were 18,000 dwellings that were destroyed in the last attack on Gaza. The situation is, you know, critical, and I think it's very important for Australians to understand that we can't support a government, a militaristic uh, government that acts in this, in this way, way outside any form of international law. If situations like this were occurring in other parts of the world, there'd be an absolute outcry and it would be stopped, but not in Palestine. No, it seems you know, very, very sad and a great indictment on the global community that... Uh, this occupation is the longest occupation in modern history since uh, 1967, after the Six-Day War. The refugee situation, the Palestinian refugees, the first wave of refugees from 1948, many of them are still alive and they're still languishing in refugee camps all around the Middle East. They were the largest refugee population in the world but now, I'm very sad to say, I think Syria, uh, Syrian refugees uh, probably outnumbering the Palestinian refugees, although, of course, a lot of the Syrian refugees are Palestinians. 
because many Palestinians have been living in Syria when they were forced from their land in 1948. So, yes, it is a great uh, shame on the rest of the world to have watched this situation for so many years. I think the post-war situation for Jews and the dreadful guilt over the Holocaust and what happened there has also been a factor that has meant that criticising Israel was a sort of a no-go zone, you know. And, of course, you know, there were lots of other complications around, you know, the violent protests, the different intifadas that have occurred over the years that have turned public opinion, that did turn public opinion against Palestinians as well. People listening to this interview, Cathy, what are you saying they could do? Well, I think the important thing to do is just make yourself aware of the situation. There is plenty of information on the net. And if you do have the opportunity, go to Palestine. Go and visit and meet Palestinians and talk to them. Lobby your local members. And also look at the BDS as a peaceful and effective way to um, make your voice heard internationally. So there's many things that people can do. I guess the thing to do is remember that every day in Gaza and the West Bank, people are being arrested, and they're being arrested in their hundreds, not just a random arrest here or there. There are massive sweeps through villages where young children are arrested and taken to prison. Now, this is all documented. You can look at Defence for Children International, DCI, Palestine, an NGO that's focusing directly on this. People may have seen the Four Corners program, I think it was last year, on the arrest of children throughout the West Bank. I mean, that's what we need to remember, that this is going on every day. People are being killed, arrested, having their rights taken away from them. This is on top of being unable, really, to just to live a normal life and travel from A to B in your own country or let alone go to Gaza. I mean, for instance, a lot of Australians probably don't know that most people in the West Bank can't visit Jerusalem. They can't actually get into Jerusalem. You know, the distance from Ramallah to Jerusalem is about 20 minutes in a car. You have to have a special permit if you're a Palestinian in the West Bank to get into Jerusalem. You've got to apply to get into Jerusalem. If you're a man, you know, between the age of, what, 15 and, say, 60, you'll never get a permit to get into Jerusalem to pray. And, of course, the most important site in Islam for Palestinians is in Jerusalem, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Most of them can't ever get there, let alone visit relatives or such like. If you live in Jerusalem, you have your Jerusalem ID and you have to maintain your Jerusalem ID. So, for instance, if you meet... So if you're a young woman and you meet a man in the West Bank and you want to marry, he will not be allowed to come and live in Jerusalem with you. He will not be given a Jerusalem ID. So therefore you have to choose to move out of Jerusalem if you want to live with him and raise a family. If you move out of Jerusalem, you will lose your Jerusalem ID. Potentially you will lose any property that you own in, in Jerusalem. You know, it's, it's absolutely draconian and... It's not until you start looking at the situation that you realise you know, how pervasive this system of control is for the Palestinians. You know, they really do need international support.
because the state, the police state uh, that is Israel, security state that is Israel, is controlling every aspect of their lives. Thanks, Cathy. My pleasure. And that was Cathy Peters, who's a radio documentary producer. You might have seen her, not seen, heard her work on the ABC, particularly documentaries about Palestine in recent times. And as she said there, she was also a councillor in the Marrickville Council in 2010, which was viciously attacked by the mainstream media for their support for BDS. That's all I have time for. But do do look on the net for that booklet, which gives you the businesses and shops, whatever, who are part of the BDS. I think if you Australians for Palestine, different groups like that, if you maybe put in a, a search for BDS booklet, Australia, you might find something that way. But it's pretty important to know what you are buying when you buy in the supermarket or clothing shops or whatever. Jonathan is here. I'll be back in a week's time. I'll say goodbye now and just play a couple of community announcements and then Jonathan will be with you. Bye for now.